We are continuing our study of Paul's letter to Titus. Our Old Testament reading in support of it comes from that twin psalm of Psalm 14 that we opened our worship with. We'll turn to Psalm 53, which is not quite but almost a verbatim of Psalm 14. Psalm 53 presents us with the problem of the human condition according to nature. It is for the choir director according to Mahalath Amaskil of David. Here is what he writes. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear, where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Oh, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And now will you turn to Paul's letter to Titus, the third chapter, and our sermon text is the first three verses. Paul, of course, is writing to Titus, who is stationed on the Mediterranean island of Crete, with the mission of setting in order the things that remain there that Paul had left behind, and also to select elders, select and train elders to lead these churches as they are planted on the island of Crete. Chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We'll end our reading of God's word here at verse 3. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is the light that our blind eyes need in order to see by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless us in our study today, that you would show us the folly of atheism, the folly of the life that each one of us once lived, and the great grace of knowing you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. In his gracious and great name we pray. Amen. The proverb says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And the sad fact is that this world in which we live is full of harmless, or harmful people. People who do us hurt, who would do us hurt. They're all around us. They shape the culture in which we live. Hurtful people, the Bible calls fools. People who say in their hearts and live as though it were true that there is no God. And if there is no God, then there's no judgment. There is no recompense. There is no accountability for our own actions. Beloved, and I want to address you young people in particular, please steer clear of them. Don't walk with them. Don't make a godless fool your companion, much less a life partner. On the fool's best days, you'll find it awkward and uncomfortable to be with him in his folly, or you certainly should feel that way to be around these people. And on an average day, it's downright dangerous to the soul at least if not to the body as well, to be around these people. Another proverb says you're better off meeting a bear robbed of her cubs than to meet a fool in his folly. The mama bear is unpredictable. She'll do whatever it takes to get her cubs back, and don't you dare get between them. Well, if you are ever in the woods and you come to a fork in the path, and you see that bear coming at you from one direction, and you see a proven fool coming at you from the other direction, don't stand still, don't hesitate, go meet the bear. Not the fool in his folly. They're dangerous. Whatever its definition, and we'll get to that in a moment, the word fool certainly isn't one that we hear a lot these days. And I think more is the pity that we don't. I like the word fool because God seems to like it, and he freely uses it of a certain class of people. It's a good old, solid word that Christians do well to take out of mothballs 
and begin using it again, begin putting it back into service for the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, we need to use that word with great care, great care, even greater care than the rest of the words we use. The Lord Jesus warns us in Matthew 5.22, whoever shall say, that is to a brother, whoever shall say to a brother in the Lord, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. So this isn't a word to use loosely in the context of home and church. It's not a word that belongs to brothers or sisters or moms or dads or little ones in the faith. It's certainly not a word to use when you're angry. It's not a word to use to insult people. But nevertheless, it's a very, very good word. It's a powerful word because it's a straight-shooting word in a twisted culture that is simply addicted to political correctness. A culture that prefers morally neutral labels like atheist, agnostic, free thinker, secular humanist, and those who pursue alternative lifestyles. People the Bible everywhere calls wicked men and fools. So what exactly is a biblical fool? Given those restrictions on the use of the word, of whom can we use the term when we need to, confident that we're not condemning ourselves to the hell of fire? Of whom can this be used? The Proverbs paint a consistently bold, colorful picture of the fool's character and final outcome. But it begins with this from Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools, on the other hand, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here in your hands today is a book full of wisdom and instruction. It's the proven key to success in life. It is the key to blessing in relationships. And these people... Don't accept it. They despise it. They don't read it. They go their own way again and again. They try the same failed godless solutions to their various life problems. And they can't understand why it didn't work this time. Making the same kind of misguided investments, dating the same kind of misguided guy or girl, indulging in the same kind of misguided behaviors. And here, a better way is open before them. So why do fools 
despise wisdom and instruction. Obviously, from this proverb, it's because they have no fear of the Lord who freely pours the grace of wisdom and instruction into those who come seeking it. And why have they no fear of the Lord? Why no reverence for him? Why does the fool have no respect that might lead him to drink from the fountain of God's infinitely good counsel? Those twin psalms that I mentioned, Psalm 14 and 53, bear virtually identical witness on this matter. It is because these fools say within themselves, there is no God. That's the root of their problem. That's the defining mark of a biblical fool. And it's why we need to keep this good word fool with all its moral content alive and well here in a nation that's lost its moral bearings. Fools say within themselves, and the more foolhardy among them say out loud and write articles and books and live as though there is no God. There is no God. Well, isn't that amazing? Let's say we take a stroll down by the San Antonio River Walk. Here we have a quaint shop full of lovely ceramic vessels of subtle shades and graceful form, each of them with feet and handles and spouts and well-fitting lids, all formed all glazed, all fired into works of useful beauty, sitting on their display shelves in the potter's shop along the river walk, all announcing to the world that the potter doesn't exist. That, strange to say, there was no potter involved in their production, there was no designer there were no hands that ever fashioned them for purposes beyond themselves, and there was no one who put them on the shelves in that shop. That they just randomly appeared there on the shelves, forming spontaneously, perhaps, over eons of time, much as the shop itself just randomly appeared. Isn't it amazing? Dr. Greg Bonson used to say he doesn't have enough faith to be an atheist. It's just too big a leap. And the intellectually thoughtful, the intellectually honest have to agree. It's a leap across a canyon of irrationality whose far side you can't even see. The first major announcement of biblical revelation is that God made us, each one of us, in his own image. With the knowledge of God written upon our own souls and upon the whole observable universe around us, it all bears his signature. We bear his signature. We bear his fingerprints. We are awash in the glory of God, 
We drink it in every day, but rather than glorify him for what they instinctively know, rather than enjoy him in all that he's revealed, rather than decide each to serve his intended purpose for us, fools take what they know and suppress it in unrighteousness. They decide they will not give God what is obviously his due. They keep pressing the truth down and down and down within themselves until it somehow becomes their firmly settled worldview that there is no God. No God who made me. No God who sustains me day by day and moment by moment. No God who sees my every deed, hears my every word, knows my every thought and holds me accountable. But it's worse because the fool is fortified in his folly by the sheer number of his associates who are hell-bent on thinking the same way. The fool has no shortage of company to share his views. There's no shortage of people standing with him. People of stature in the academic and the political and the entertainment worlds. People who make their escape from reason, escape from personal accountability, just as he does. People ready to join with him in the mindless chant of secular humanism, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. And therefore no accountability. Is it any wonder that those two twin psalms, 14 and 53, go on immediately to describe the fools as corrupt and committing abominable deeds? If there's no accountability, why not? What other outcome could we expect? The inward perversion has to find outward expression. And they have the reinforcement of all these others around them cheering them on when they do. The inclination of lost sinners is always to take it down to the next level. Whatever the dark imaginations of their heart conceive the next level of corruption to be, fools don't color within the lines because they don't recognize the lines that are there. They don't recognize the lines that are written both in nature and more plainly still on the pages of Scripture. They don't live within the boundaries of God's law because they've resolved that he doesn't exist. As if it were a matter to be personally decided whether or not he exists, a matter of personal choice. Like the color of curtains that you hang in your living room. So the potter can exist for me if I decide he exists for me, but not for you if you decide he doesn't exist for you. Friends, I want you to imagine for a moment what would happen if you applied that rule of rationality 
to your tax bill or to your monthly mortgage payment or to a grease fire in your kitchen. That's all right, dear. It doesn't exist for me. Just pretend it doesn't exist for you either. We'll be fine. We'll see if the IRS thinks it's fine. See if your mortgage company thinks it's fine. See if the fire department or the insurance company thinks it's fine. You can see why I'm such a fan of the word fool in this culture that is shaped and governed by the spiritually, morally, and intellectually blind. The church's ministers have this sacred duty to remind their congregations of certain things related to our past and our present and our future. We saw this the last time we were together, and we see it again today. And what I hope you'll take home with you today, dear ones, are two reminders from God's Word. Pastors and evangelists like Titus are under obligation to remind their people, first of all, that there was a time we all were fools, no different than the rest. That we're all recovering fools, as it were. And then secondly, he reminds us, as recovering fools, to take this remedy of grace and its fruits with a very tall glass of humility. God condemns the spirit of this intellectual dark age in which we presently live, an age in which people, deceived and deceiving, put prejudicial dogma ahead of plain evidence, who put personal convenience ahead of public law, who put intellectual conformity ahead of critical thinking, Selfish pleasures ahead of the plain testimony of a universe that summons us to worship and adore the living God. We live in an age that calls evil good and good evil. That celebrates evil and condemns good. And doesn't the testimony of our own conscience remind each one of us of our own guilt in these very things? You see, friends, the distinction between the fool and me, or the fool and you, or the lost world and the church of the redeemed, the difference, the distinction, lies solely in the fact that the God of all grace made a distinction between us. It's his doing. The first line of verse 3, let's never forget it in our own defense of the Christian faith. Paul certainly never forgot it. For we also, once, were foolish ourselves. I myself, I the Christian, started out in life no less a godless fool than Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens 
or Lady Gaga or anyone else who lives his life as though God does not exist. I was one of them. I was disobedient. And my disobedience can't be blamed upon my parents, can't be blamed upon my environment. He who knows men's hearts doesn't let us get away with shifting our blame onto secondary causes. We can't just say, well, I inherited this messed up thinking, this messed up lifestyle. The fact is, there was a time I was disobedient to God, my maker, because I decided to be. I wanted to be. I wished myself to be my own prophet, priest, and king. I was deceived about life and what makes for a good one. And the worst of it was, the worst of it was not that the devil was deceiving me. The worst of it was that I was deceiving myself. Whenever conscience would whisper something to me about duty or kindness or gentleness or consideration of others, I would stick my fingers in my ears and loudly convince myself instead that my life was my own to live, that my decisions are valid on the sole basis of the fact that they're mine to make. That seemed so self-evident to me back then, just as self-evident as its antithesis does to me today. Because eventually, in his unsearchable grace, God gives wisdom and instruction to those who fear him. Consequently, now I know what the facts are. And the fact is, I am not my own. I was bought with a price. And whenever I label as fools the atheists around me, whenever I condemn them for their various spiritual and intellectual failures, along with them, I condemn a boy of yesteryear who used to revel in the same intellectual pride the same spiritual laziness, the same self-centeredness, the same foolishness and slowness of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. That boy was me. Perhaps you too, before the grace of God appeared and brought us into this blessed subjection to the truth. The remedy... For recovering fools like us is therefore to be taken with a very tall glass of humility. The remedy is that the gospel came from outside us. We are saved. Passive voice. We are saved. Saved from what we once were, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, spending our lives in the unprofitable pursuits described in verse 3. We're saved from it. That doesn't mean we figured out a way of, out of it on our own. 
I didn't figure it out. Much less does it mean that we were able to just close our eyes and wish away the righteous sentence of death that once hung over us. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such, he says, were some of you. But you were washed. There's that passive voice again. You were washed. But you were sanctified, set apart. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So there it is, the remedy for recovering fools. It is to be reminded of the grace of God toward otherwise helpless, hopeless sinners. To be reminded of the sound evangelical doctrine, the grace found only in the medicine chest of God's word. That barren wasteland of malice and envy, living a life detestable to God, hateful toward others. If anyone today is united to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit takes that old self, those lost years we once called a life, He takes it and he writes upon that life of sin credited to the account of Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he cancels the debt of all those foolish lost years. And he takes that canceled life of sin And he rolls it all up together into a very small, tight ball of the filth it is. And from high upon the Savior's cross, he casts it as far as God can cast it into the sea of his own gracious forgetfulness. He remembers it against you no more. By faith and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David saw this amazing grace from afar off. He saw it from a thousand years earlier as he wrote in the 103rd Psalm, Far as east from west is distant, he has put away your sin. Like the pity of a father has Jehovah's pity been. The remedy for recovering fools is the redeeming grace of God chased down with copious humility. But the prescription also includes exercise. Grace changes us. It strengthens us. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. 
Good news puts fat on the bones. We begin in Christ now, so enabled, to walk by the Spirit. Our fine motor skills begin to develop and we learn how to color within the lines of God's world and God's word. Once we foolishly hallucinated all kinds of fantasies of personal independence and sovereignty over our own decisions, now by grace sobered up, we see ourselves as we are. And we, in fact, always were subject to rulers and authorities. We begin to understand that we're not our own, neither do governments themselves derive their just powers merely from the consent of the governed. As Daniel prayed in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar's dream was revealed to him, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Dear ones, is our Lord Jesus Christ in fact the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Or are those titles just meaningless expressions of religious sentimentality? I think the Holy Spirit knows whereof he writes. And if Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then our citizenship in heaven, bearing down upon us, can't help but leave its stamp upon our citizenship here. In public life and private, we who once languished in our folly become by grace ready for the exercising of every good work. And what becomes of it? What do you suppose comes of a life redeemed from folly now lived for the glory of God? What could be the impact of such a gentle, peaceable life, considerate of all men, compared even casually against a Cretan culture of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons? Or an American culture of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Or such a culture anywhere in the world. What must others infer of us, a new humanity in Christ? What must they infer of the God we serve? Might it not be that by the grace of God abounding even to recovering fools like ourselves, Civil magistrates, too, might bow the knee to him. Such things have happened in history. Such things have happened. History bears witness to them. Paul knew experientially the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel. And he knew that not only in the Galatian synagogues, not only by the Philippian riversides and jail cells, 
He knew that power among the Athenian philosophers of Mars Hill and the judgment seats of Jerusalem and Rome, the centers of intellectual and political power, and in the meekness of Christ, he brought the wisdom and power to God of God to bear upon them. Now, God clearly doesn't call you to be the Apostle Paul. He called Paul to be Paul. He calls you to be the you that you are in Christ. By grace, through faith. And once in Christ, once you avail yourself of this remedy for your soul, never underestimate the power of the gospel to do good or harm by the pattern of the life you now live. Because others are watching. Others are watching you. Others who may have trouble suppressing within themselves that truth about the God they know is there. People who are tired of the intellectual struggle that atheism requires of them tired of the slavery of unbelief, people who are ready for the Lord Jesus Christ at last to set them free. And your life is a testimony to them. Do you consider your sphere of influence in the world to be small and inconsequential? then within that small, inconsequential sphere of yours, beloved, be all that Christ Jesus has redeemed you to be. Wise, gladly subject to rulers and authorities, gladly obedient, ready for every good deed, slandering no one, uncontentious, Gentle, showing consideration for all men. Some of those now struggling to suppress within themselves the knowledge of God are going to notice the testimony of a life well lived. A life lived for the glory and enjoyment of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have communicated to us in your word, and we thank you for all that this means to us, that your intent for us is not just that we might know something, for we are not Gnostics. Your intent for us is that we know Jesus Christ, that we walk before him, that we walk with him, that we live this life that is now freely made available to us by the gospel. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would deliver the remaining captives from their sin and slavery. We pray that we might all together walk together in the light of the gospel, glorifying you in our thoughts, words, and deeds, and enjoying you as every new day dawns. We ask this in Jesus, our King's name. Amen.